Hello, welcome to the Life Done Differently podcast with me, Neil Whitten, and my co-host Ray Richards. Join us on our journey to find out what separates the doers from the thinkers. Hi everyone, hope you're doing okay given the circumstances. Um, I know I'm feeling a little bit down in the dumps about being stuck inside, um, but welcome to our conversation with Charles Wookie. Charles is the CEO of A Blueprint for Better Business. It's a charity that helps organisations consider their social and environmental impact alongside their financial goals. And this is how I know Charles. His organisation does some great work, but how Charles ended up with Blueprint is the interesting bit. Boarding school from the age of six was a mixed blessing. It's certainly not what he wanted for his children, put it that way. Philosophy and physics at Oxford followed school and then into KPMG to become an accountant. And that's when he started to make up his own mind. The obvious path was to fit in, work his nuts off for the next 10 to 15 years and become a partner and all the financial benefits that would follow. But two weeks after qualifying, at the moment his salary would have doubled, he left because he could see the future and it meant becoming somebody he didn't want to become. What followed has been a career of curiosity. A few years at the House of Commons before leaving to spend three months on a silent retreat in North Wales uh, alerted him to the fact that he's got one crack at life, haven't we all? The dark bit was confronting himself, he says, and his conclusion was that there are things that are real and there are things that are illusory. And I wanted to live in a way that makes sense of what is real. I do not want to have regrets. And it's these comments from Charles that really reminded me of Bronnie Ware's work. Bronnie Ware worked in palliative care. Her patients were those who had gone home to die. She was with them in their last three to 12 weeks of their life. uh, And conversations in those final few weeks, understandably, were highly emotional. When asked about any regrets or what they would have done differently, common themes surfaced again and again. And the most common regret was... I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And it seems to me that Charles has that courage. He has the confidence to know when it's time to move on, the confidence to overcome imposter syndrome, the confidence to step into the unknown and avoid regrets. After his retreat, Charles worked for the Institute of Fiscal Studies, where he was the guy who knew nothing about economics um, and learned a lot as a consequence. And then, having met a nun, as you do, he ended up in the God business, working for Cardinal Basil Hume. This role and his obvious affection for Hume satisfied his curiosity for 11 years, at which point he stepped down uh, and went into the unknown again. This time it was business, more specifically a blueprint for better business, which he's been leading since 2011. In spring 2022, Charles steps down as the CEO to go on to another as yet undecided adventure. So don't be surprised if you see him on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury sometime soon. I bring you Charles Wookie, reinvent yourself. Charles Wookie. I love your surname, Charles Wookie. Um, it makes me think of Wookie Hole. 
Yeah. Well, my uh, forebears, my father's family came from Bristol. Did they? Uh, and yeah, yeah. And in the Brighton telephone directory where we live, there's only, well, when there were such things as telephone directories, we were the only Wookiees in it. But in Bristol, there's a whole page of them. So it's a, it's a very local name to that area. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And that's actually a, a, a geography in, in Bristol, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah. Well, well no, there is a little village of Wookiee by okay. the whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, so the name is just comes from that. From that very part good of the world. cheese. Very good cheese down there. Very good cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think I read that Wookie Hole had um, really struggled through COVID, actually. So maybe oh, it's really? okay. Now. I wasn't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but lo- lovely to be talking to you, Charles. Um, you are coming to us from your man cave, which is in the basement of your, <laughs> of your house. Um, well, it's nice to be with you both. And uh, we, we normally start by, by asking, um, how do you answer the question when someone says, what do you do? How do you tend to answer that question? But we don't like the question, what do you do? So, so if we were to ask you, um, how do you spend your time? How do you describe yourself to people? How would you describe yourself to somebody new at a party, for example? How, how, how would you do that? Um, I'd probably say I run a charity, uh, but it's an unusual charity because it works with businesses. <clears throat> uh, and I've been doing it for about five years or so. Um, got involved in helping to set it up before that um and i probably would just say that actually um okay. I've, got, I've got some grown-up children um and i live in brighton and what why is the charity unusual uh it's unusual because it was set up after the financial crisis with the specific aim of working with businesses um and most charities exist to solve societal problems for which there's no market solution and the kind of thought is well businesses make money out of doing things that are useful in society and then we have charities that do other things that businesses can't do this is actually a kind of like a short circuit in that way of thinking because it's a charity it's actually pointing towards business and um, having lots of conversations with business leaders and the reason for being a charity is because the people who set us up said if we're going to be a really good catalyst for change it needs conversations with a different kind of um, entity which has got a freedom that you only have through not having a commercial relationship. Uh, and I, it was an amazing insight. It was the business leaders who helped set Blueprint up who said this, this is a way to do it. So do the opposite of what everybody else does. So mm. don't be a kite mark. Don't be a compliance burden. Don't don't put a list of companies on your website. Just be a kind of catalyst for change and don't take any money. So that's why. And, and it is powerful for that. Yeah. Yeah, it has. I mean, <clears throat> I think people scratch their heads and think, well, you know, what are you? Which is also useful because it starts them thinking. But it means also, you know, when you go into a business meeting, often people are, you know, they're not saying it, but they're thinking, so what does this person want? Uh, and, and what's the financial sort of, um, what, what's the real game here? Uh, yeah. And of course, if you're not genuinely not trying to get any money out of people, they start to relax and they, and then you have a different conversation with them. Um and it creates a space for um, a real dialogue. Yeah, that's the amazing thing we found. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't very good consulting practices who do the same kind of thing and do get paid. Sure. Um, and, you know, in, in later on, it may well be that Blueprint moves to that kind of model. I don't know. But for the moment, and, and when we were set up, it was really important that we, that we had that independence. And so it's, it's, as you said, unconventional in terms of what, we, what a charity normally is. When people are thinking, what's the game? What What is the game? Well, I think often in, in commercial relationships, uh, it's, you know, obviously it's an exchange of goods in relation in, uh, for consideration. 
Um, but I think sometimes there's a sense of, well, you know, what do people really want out of this relationship? Um, I mean, the best business relationships are actually, I think, generative of good human relationships as well. So I don't think there's a conflict between the two. Um, but I, I think um, uh, in the consulting world, there has been a kind of sense of wanting to sell services. I mean, a senior partner, one of the big London, big consulting practices, his ex-senior partner, he retired actually, so he was slightly freer in the way he talked. But he said, he said, Charles, we need to understand the business model. I said, I said tell me what the business model is. He said, well, what's the purpose of the gig? I said, I don't know. What's the purpose of the gig? He said, the answer is the next gig. Yeah. So what we're trying to do all the time is to build in dependency so people need us. And I thought, okay, so that's very honest. But I also thought that's the opposite of what we want to do because, in a way, I think my whole approach actually is to, is, is is to think that a lot of what's wrong in organisations is um, solvable by people within those organisations thinking differently for themselves. Uh, and, and the head that's got the problem is also the head that's got the solution. Um, not always, but very often. Um, and creating spaces for different sorts of questions to be asked and different kind of conversations to happen can often be incredibly releasing of energy and enthusiasm and Kind of people saying, "Oh right, okay, yeah, we can do it this way, and we can think about these." And you know, if you think about the ways in which businesses actually are successful, there's a lot to do with the quality of relationships that they actually create. But often people don't realise how they're in fact making their money, and they think it's other things that, rather than the things that really do create the relationships, which generate uh, loyalty and commitment and get people wanting to come and work for you again next week, and get customers wanting to come back to you, and suppliers happy to work with you. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and di- I was just thinking, di- different stim- different different stimulus gets different conversations going, right? You know, if you've got the same people in the same room, you're going to get the same conversations. But if you yes. get different people, <clears throat> they're in different places with a charity and not a regular, you know, yeah. profit organization. Something different is going to come out of it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is. Yeah. And Charles, what 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 led you to wanting to to do that work to create this unconventional charity? Well, okay, so so um, the immediate uh, precursor to it uh, was um, so I'd you know done a few different com- rather unconventional things in my in my working life. So I've been an accountant and then worked in House of Commons and. <laughs> Uh, uh, from an economics research institute and, and then also for a, a Catholic cardinal. And in, it was in fact in that role that um, in 2009, I got rung up by a guy, got to know in the city, who read a document that Pope Benedict had produced on a, something called Catholic social thought. And he said, I've just read this document. It has the best ethical critique of the financial crisis that I've read. It's brilliant. Uh, you, you go and tell the cardinal that you work with that, um, he should use this to create a conversation with people, city leaders, because they all know everything's gone wrong and they haven't got a clue what to do about it. Um, and so I ended up helping to organise a seminar at Schroeder's Bank in the summer of, in autumn 2009. We had 22 city leaders there, chairs of six of the banks, and with a partner at Goldman Sachs, he and I sat, worked out kind of quotes from this document about the ethical issues of the market and really good, sharp insiders questions. So he thought, of the, I mean, I didn't know you know, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't the insight from, from the industry, but he did. And so he created this document, which had really good questions in it. And then we had a three-hour conversation with a bunch of business leaders, um, these city leaders. And at the end of it, they all said, this is great because it was, wasn't was about the regulator. It wasn't about the commercial thing. It wasn't about philanthropy. It was really about culture and how, these, how our organizations are showing up. 
Um, and it was honest because it was private. And they said, can we do it again? So we did it again six months later. And then uh, I ended up working with a few of them on a kind of conference called Restoring Trust in the City, which the Lord Mayor hosted and kept in touch with a, with, with a number of these, the, the, these people. Um, and then a year later, there'd been um, the BP Deepwater Horizon fiasco. Mm. Uh, there'd been GSK had some big corruption scandals in Mexico, I think. And there was this general sense that the relationship between business and society had now gone way beyond the financial sector. And there was a kind of, certainly a big business in society, a kind of real reset needed. <clears throat> and a number of these people uh, came to see the archbishop, who I was still working with, and they said, look, we think this ethical critique and thinking that you've got, which is essentially based on human dignity and the common good, um, if we can keep religion out of it, crudely, um, is really powerful. Mm. Um, and we think that the business can't sort this problem about the relationship between business and society itself because nobody trusts business leaders and actually this is a systemic issue it's about how the market shows up it's how people behave and would you help <clears throat> so he seconded me effectively to go and work with them and i brought in a, um, a nun i knew who's a philosophy professor uh, who's brilliant uh, and uh, a, a former one of the senior partners at KPMG, who I also knew, brought in some a couple of youngsters from KPMG. We we formed this really interesting eclectic group in 2012, and we had the luxury of spending a few months thinking about what's the you know how would we characterise what's gone wrong in the relationship between business and society, and what can we do about it? And that was the origin of Blueprint. Wow, it's it's, it's amazing to hear that it came from um, some form of religious background and and a, and a challenge of of ethics um that what we'll what we'll get into in a second we're, we're going to rewind um and we're going to go back to the beginning of some of the areas where where life started to be less conventional for you but um do it feels like would, would it be fair to say that uh the work that you are doing through blueprint these decisions that you've made or whatever's led you to this place feels like work that you're doing that you're born to do that's purposeful that that that, that is very deliberate um it doesn't sound like you could have woken up one day and kind of decided that it's probably a number of, of channels that have led you there. <laughs> no, well, that's a great question, Neil. I mean, I, I, I've always gone through life hoping to have a plan, which I've never had. Uh, so I've known instinctively what the next decision is, but I've, I've, I've never really had a long-term plan. Um, at least I, if there is one, I have no idea what it is. Um, the weird thing is in, re if, in retrospect, um, I do believe what I'm doing now is kind of um, a good use of me. And mm. I suppose in some sense you could say, um, uh, I'm, well, I feel personally very fulfilled. I'm very, very lucky, actually, in that way. And I also think that all the other things I've done before, and it helps, actually, funnily enough, in what I'm doing now to be a chartered accountant. Not that I can remember much about a PL account, but, you know, it's ridiculous that the, the, the qualification gives you cred mm. <laughs> uh, in the business world. You know, and it helps, actually, you know, being about politics. And I did, did, did some economics as well. And I spent some time thinking about ethics. So in a funny way, what I'm doing now, all of those things are actually really relevant day to day. Mm. Um, so uh, but, but I never planned it. It just so happened that this is how it's worked out. And it may be that I wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing now had I not done that range of different things. Probably wouldn't, actually. But isn't, isn't that because, you know, your last set of experiences are the only things that can take you to your next step? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't look really more than a few steps ahead. It's no, you can't. Everything, you... Your perspective changes the minute you you're in that new world. It's like, 
there are so many new uh, stories that you're um, becoming aware of that the, yeah. world is, the world actually looks different. The world does does look different, but you but but you had. I mean, I had to go through, as I'm sure lots of people do, if you move from one domain to another. I had to go through a sort of barrier of imposter syndrome, feeling, you know, what do I really know about the challenges that CEOs of large companies have? I've never been a CEO, never run a large company, worked in one years ago, you know, been involved in other big organisations, and then you realise, which is actually I also realised when I was working in the in the in the in what I think of as the God business, you know, I became colorblind as I think of it there, you know, there's some people who are priests who go around with collars and you, and you realize after a bit, these are just human beings, you know, they're just yeah, people, yeah. right. Brilliant. And they're just, you know, that's what, that's all they do. And exactly the same in business, basically, yeah. you know, and I kind of, my abiding thought now is that all organizations have way more in common simply by the fact that they're different ways in which people come together to do things they can't do alone. Yeah. And actually the separate, you know, the, one might be in the private sector, one might be a charity, one might be a faith organization, but these are people. Um, and the, the real issues, the real issues about how people come together to do things generatively or exploitatively are the same. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, you uniforms, whatever might type of uniform they may be, if you're wearing a Man United kit, you know, yeah. or, or, or a policeman's uniform or a, you're a nurse, it, it, they, they are uniforms for a particular reason because it is conveying something. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But actually underneath it all, you know, the minute that policeman goes home um, yeah. and goes out with their friends, you know, yeah. they they're, they're probably, be, you know, we, we behave differently out of uniform as well. Well, we do. And actually, funnily enough, I mean, this is a slight digression, but I think one of the things that's been very healthy about COVID and remote working is the fact that we have calls like the one we're doing now, where people's person, there's a sort of blurring of the distinction between the person yeah. and the role. Mm. And we're meeting people, although it's on a screen, we're kind of meeting their cat or their kids or, you know, the pictures they've got or whatever. So, yeah. so we're much more rounded. And we, there's no longer this ease of ways, which is actually one of the problems we felt we were trying to deal with, this idea of a divided life. Why, why am I somebody at work and somebody else at home? And um, well, Yeah, and it was always used to frustrate me and to a certain extent still does, the, this whole talk of work-life balance. Yeah. <laughs> because, well, work is life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it's you know, you don't spend your time at work so that you can live your life. You know, I know. Why, and that, why, why shouldn't work be enjoyable, fun, stimulating, challenging? You know, the same sort of things that you get from your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and that is absolutely one of the things that sort of inspired me to think that we should try and do something with this blueprint thing. Because when you look at the statistics certainly then around the number of people who are miserable at work mm. and not yeah. not engaged and not involved. And you think, well, this is such a waste of people and talent and life. Really. It, uh, so, it, it brings me to the conversation we had um, a couple of weeks ago with Junior Smart, who's, uh, um, he was talking about his time in prison and he was, he was talking about <clears throat> both the, the new inmates that are arriving at the prison because he had a particular cell overlooking the entrance right. yeah but he also noticed the prison guards and they sort of shook themselves off and prepared to go into work as they <laughs> stepped into the mm. prison and i think we 
all do that to some extent, whether it's, you know, the introvert going to a party, not that they do that these days very much, but, <laughs> uh, but we all have this sort of yeah, um, persona. Yeah, that's right. That we, I mean, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it is a good thing, but, but it often it isn't. Charles, the, the work that you're doing through Blueprint, just before we move on, I think I've heard this, but um, you talked about the disconnect between business and, and society. And then you also talked about um, being generative. Ultimately, what's the, what's the change you're trying to create through Blueprint? Um, I think it's got two dimensions to it. It's one at the level of the organization where businesses see themselves as there to create social value or value for society, which is more than just financial returns, but it's thinking in a holistic way about your impact on the environment, on, on society and, on, and the quality of relationships that you create. So that's one change. Uh, and the other is, um, if you like the switching on of intrinsic motivation, so mm. people feel engaged through their work and they feel more fulfilled than they otherwise would. And I, I think that both of things, these things go together. I think as both an organizational challenge and a personal challenge. So, you know, we make decisions, how we step into work, what's our frame of mind? What are we really trying to achieve? Am I just here for me? Am I here for me and the team? Am I here wanting to contribute to something bigger? And those mm. are kind of choices really, which partly we will make, but partly are also foisted on us by the environment we find ourselves in. Um, and so for me, there's something about both of those aspects being being possible to change um and and helping to do that yeah okay and, and um, do, you th do you think it's do you think it's happening do you think the trend is I I, so i find this question really difficult to answer um for two reasons one is because i'm very conscious of the fact that we tend to talk to people who want to talk to us hmm, yeah, so yeah. it's very easy to get overexcited by the amazing and they are amazing actually the things that i'm seeing in the organizations we're working with and the commitment that people have got to doing this stuff Another thing that gives me confidence, actually, there's a brilliant book I was reading the other day by Rutger Bregman called Humankind, um, which is basically partly an attack on this predominant idea that human beings are fundamentally self-interested and nasty, life is nasty, brutish and short. And, and he's just pointing to all these evidence points which show that human beings are naturally cooperative. And rather than, you know, homo economicus, that we're all kind of self-interested, he said a better description would be homo puppy, that we all want to play, we all want relationships. And, the, and so I think there is a kind of myopia which the media doesn't help with, which sort of magnifies the examples which there will always be of exploitative practices in business and in society and downplays the actually everyday good. And I just think the everyday good is probably a lot better than we think. And I think, you know, most people get out of bed and they don't, they don't actually want to be exploitative or some people do but most people just want to do a good job and feel good about it particularly, and, and I, particularly I, when they're not afraid yeah particularly when they're not exactly exactly yeah so i mean and i also think that you know there are lots of trends that are going on which are helping i think i mean you know i i do it is a partly a fear thing but i do think the kind of the climate change debate and the, and we need a, a sustainable economic system is waking a lot of people up in a good way it's frightening mm. them but it's also waking them up to do things differently I also think that young people coming into the workforce are increasingly, I mean, I'm very struck by the CEOs I talked to who told me about their kids and it's their mm. kids who are saying, you know, what are you doing? 
as you know running this organization and that's a big factor i think people want you know talented people today want to work for organizations they feel they can feel good about yeah and and so people are having to shift for that reason as well and i, I think investors are also i think a lots of the lots of factors which are actually pushing this agenda in business helpfully um it's not by any means automatic but i do i'm actually cautiously hopeful because i think also another example would be we've had some fascinating conversations after the black lives matter um you know the george floyd murder and what came out from those was a number of ceos saying so they did a thing you'd expect right which is to send an email out saying doors open any of our black employees would like to kind of talk to me about this please do well of course loads did and but often what what i heard from them about what happened then was that people would be they weren't talking about discrimination at work because on the whole these are well-run companies and people's experience as a black employee isn't discriminatory but they were saying i let me tell you about my life my life outside work so one ceo was telling me about uh, a colleague of his who's black who goes to visit his mother from south london to north on a sunday he says i always wear a tie why well because driving as a, as a black man in my 40s driving a very expensive car from south to north london i'll often be stopped by the police so i had no idea that this is this man's experience i'm mm. you know, and and that that is actually i think um changing people because once you know that you can't unknow what you know and if you've opened yourself up to these conversations as a lot of them have you're kind of you know your consciousness is raised by that and therefore if you then ignore it you're it's a different thing from just not doing about it, anything about it in the first place and i think i think businesses are recognizing their agency in the system you know they are social organizations they have a role in society if there's injustices they can either be part of the problem or they can be agents of change and I think what's real, what people are realising is there can be agents of change and they need to be agents of change. That also requires uh, shareholders to be in on that. Well, it requires, yeah, but some of these things don't necessarily cost an enormous amount of money. It's a mindset thing. But I mean, yeah. you know, how you think about, um, some do though, you know, but you know, how you think about social mobility, how you think about your role um, as an, uh, trying to, to support maybe through um, different kind of social initiatives, apprenticeship schemes, broadening access, and so on. I mean, there are ways in which you can do things which probably don't cost a lot, but which do have quite an impact. Um, and then there are things that do cost a lot, yeah, where you do really need to talk to shareholders about. Um, so that shift is also, I think, part of the bigger kind of um, system shift in play, um, where directors of companies and, and company leaders are recognising that they owe greater responsibilities than just the shareholders. And, and share, but, but shareholders... <coughs> they can still win can't they as long as they take a slightly longer term view yeah oh, absolutely i mean I, I, we I, in our work we we kind of say that we don't think that there's a well i say you've got to avoid two things you've got to avoid the idea that there's a frictionless win-win that somehow if you do all this purpose stuff you're just going to make more money because i don't believe that either i think something usually if you if you've been bouncing out of bed in the morning saying we're here to maximize profit and all of a sudden you get purpose they're going to be some things that you're selling that are profitable that you should stop yeah. Um, you know, one of the banks we've done some work with, they were making a load of money out of unauthorized overdrafts and they realized they're making 50% of their profit from 1% of their customers. In other <laughs> words, they're making loads of money out of people who couldn't manage their finances. Mm. So if you're just here to maximize profit, well, whose problem is that? But if you're, if you suddenly decide you want to get a purpose to benefit society, that's not really very good revenue. Mm. So you need to, you need to, you need to stop doing that and you need to innovate into other things. And that's a, that's a, that's a transition, but I don't believe in a long-term trade-off. I don't see, and there's not, you know, while you can't prove that purpose is the route to greater profitability, there isn't any evidence either that it's a route to, um, it's a, it's a route to great losses. 
Well, you, you, you used the term earlier, becoming an, an agent of change. And we also talked about how um, some of the uh, paths, the path that you've taken and, and um, some of the experiences that you've had have kind of converged to allow you to do this work in a way that might have been impossible or very difficult for someone else to do. I also suspect that um, helping other people understand and become agents of change would be much harder if you couldn't um, represent it yourself. And uh, so it'd be really good to explore that. I think I think we can see it from some of the things we talked about before we started started the conversation, just around your your experience so far. But it'd be great to just go back to the beginning and start looking at um, how you got more and more comfortable to start moving and shifting towards areas in life that felt more right to you, doing it your way. Okay. So if if we rewind back, Charles, what what was what was growing up like, and and tell us about the first big decisions that you can remember making. So middle class, um, uh, born in Farnborough in Hampshire. Um, I've got three sisters. I'm the only boy. So my sisters uh, always and still do rub that in as my mother's <laughs> only only son. Um, I, I was then, I mean, my sisters all went to local schools. My my father, who'd not been to a private school himself, but decided because he, he, he ran his own business and he was doing well and he could afford it. He thought the best thing for me was to go to boarding school. So he sent me off to prep school at the age of six, um, uh, which, and then I went, so so I went to prep school in Somerset, and then I went to a boarding school also in Somerset, um, where I left at 16 or near 17. So my whole schooling was, was um, yeah, in that private system. And uh, I remember looking at one of my sons when he was six, seven, thinking, my God, you know, so, this very thin blade of grass uh, was packed off. And in those days, I mean, it's changed now a bit, I think, but I mean, you know, you, you're off, you're off for 12 weeks and then you have half term. Mm. And when you're six, 12 weeks is like a kind of eon. Mm. So, yeah, so that was my childhood. I mean, I, and I, as, I wasn't terribly happy at boarding school. And uh, I think like a lot of people, it's a kind of you know, fairly scarring experience. I mean, for some people it's great, but for me, you, you get used to it. You, you learn to live. Um, but you, what you learn, you learn a divided life, right? You learn to cope um, mm. and you learn to split off what you do at school, you know, school life and, and home life. And this, so this has come up, a few, this has come up a few times with various conversations of people that have had similar experiences on, on the podcast. And uh, it seems like one of the ways that people cope is they, they, they sort of find the thing that they can escape into. Often yeah. that's a sport or a particular um, uh, hobby or fashion or, or, or other people. Um, can you remember what that was for you? Yeah, I was playing the piano. Okay, okay. Um, so, so, yeah, absolutely. That was that was my kind of solace and escape and way of coping. And, and um, what was it? What was it that that? Um, why was it so powerful? Why was it so important? Um, well, it just opened up a whole world for me. I mean, um, and uh, it was, I mean, a lot on my own, but but when I was 14, 15, there was a, a, a flautist who, and he and I ended up doing a lot of stuff together. In fact, we played, we did a little public concert after we both, we were both reasonably good at it. And, um, but what I, I, I mean, I, I nearly gave up when I was about 11 or 12 and my father said, well, just do it for one more year. And, and that actually took me over a hump and I suddenly was able to play the pieces that I'd listened to and really liked. And so then it became self-generating, you know, and, and also there was a guy who'd 
who was studying at the Royal Academy, who came, who was a kind of ex, well, he's an ex-pupil of the school and was kind of a bit of a star musically pianist, a man, lovely man called Philip Folk. And he came and judged a, a school music competition. And then afterwards, he said, look, where do you live? And he didn't live too far away. And then he started, he started giving me lessons in the holidays. And when I look back on that now, that was amazingly lucky because he was probably 22, 23. I was 14. He was passing on to me what he was learning. And he taught me how to practice. I mean, nobody ever done that. They say, when mm. so what's difficult about this piece? Why can't you play that bit? And you think it's your right hand, it's probably your left hand. And 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 he just applied, and it was just so imaginative and completely different from anything I had before. So I really learned to play and um, uh, loved it. I still do. You, you said you almost gave up, and then your dad said, just 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 do this next bit and to get over yeah. the hump. I'm, I'm interested in um, how well received that was from you and the relationship with your dad and the fact that he was able to help you through that that chasm yeah yeah well i got i mean he was interesting i mean he he doesn't play i mean, he's dead now but he didn't he didn't play himself uh he very much enjoyed listening to music and he was encouraging and he, he i thought it was a it was a wise thing for him to do actually and i i don't know quite why i accepted his advice because i didn't on many other things <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's probably because you sort of knew you, you, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's you, right. I think you that's probably right. thought, yeah, okay, all right. I'm going to take your advice on this one because yeah, I actually yeah, back of my maybe. mind. Yeah. <laughs> but he was teaching you staying power essentially, but it was staying power for something that he knew you were motivated by yourself. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. Uh, and, you know, that, that I had some kind of talent in, so it was yeah. worth doing, yeah. And then, and then the, the obvious question is, did you did you attempt to or want to pursue that as something that represented a career for you um, um well i i kind of i got to the point where i was able to play in public and did um uh i mean just you know amateur things or and at university i didn't read music but i did occasionally perform as part of you know student concerts i'd play a beethoven sonata or something and after university i did i carried on having music lessons through college and i did go and develop a kind of recital program and go along to the Royal College and get and play it to somebody because um, you can do you can get an external qualification uh, and they and they just said well you know not bad you know another six months of four hours a day and you probably pass <laughs> <laughs> and in a funny way that was enough validation for me because I thought okay so I, I could actually do this if I really really wanted to do it and and then I thought, well, I don't. I mean, I don't want to do that. I mean, I was a reasonable pianist, but the world is full of reasonable pianists. Uh, and also, I've seen people where music as a career has actually taken the joy out of some of it sure. because you end up playing so many of the same pieces. And it's a pretty brutal professional career as well. And so I, I thought, well, I'll try, I'll try and just keep going, but I want to try and keep playing and so far as I can through life reasonably. And, and taking you back to why you did it in the first place, it was a form of escapism. Yes. That, and that need probably wasn't. It, it wasn't going to be satisfied by playing in public. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although I quite like showing off. I do like quite like, I like having something to aim for and I don't mind. And I quite enjoy the pressure yeah. of perversely of, of knowing I've committed to doing this thing. So and you push yourself. I push my, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, that that makes loads of sense. So, so from I don't know if you can remember what what this would have felt like at the time, but it sounds like you were quite considered in the decision making around what um, the piano represented in your future. Mm. How did you then um, think about the path that you wanted to go on in a more kind of traditional sense around what your career and therefore your life looked like? 
Um, well, it's great difficulty, really, because, I mean, I, I was reasonably good at academically at, uh, sort of across the board. So um, and I didn't really know whether to do arts or science. I ended up doing science A-levels and I really enjoyed maths and physics, but I knew I didn't want to be a scientist. So um, uh, I was lucky enough to get in um, to Oxford to do physics and philosophy. So I did this kind of joint degree. Wow, that's an interesting hybrid, isn't it? Yeah. So there were three people in my year in the university doing it. It was just a very unusual course. But uh, because I'd done science A-levels, that seemed the right, you know, I, that, the obvious, well, the only thing to do. But I also was I was also fascinated by philosophy. So uh, and it was it was brilliant actually. I really I mean completely useless as a degree, but but <laughs> but but I mean in terms of somebody you know who had the quirky interests I had, uh, I, it was exactly the right thing to do. Um, in the sense that I really um, I got a lot out. I didn't do much work in my kind of second year, but I did a fair bit in my last. And uh, no, I learned a huge amount. And philosophy is a great thing to do. But I mean I can understand why if you just read philosophy, people say you just go mad. And I think that's true. <laughs> so it's quite good to have something where there are answers and then part of the week and then the other half of the week there are no answers. Um so that were was you, quite fun. Were you thinking about how um that decision would extend to your first job or, or career moves? No. Not at, at that all. point. I wasn't thinking Did, about that at all. W- w- no. was there any external pressure from your parents or anywhere else? No, I mean uh a, a bit not um the the pressure from my father was you know everybody's got a degree these days you need a professional qualification uh and the best one to get is accountancy and then once you've done that you can do anything uh and if you're interested in all these weird things like philosophy go make lots of money and then do what you want to do uh but do it that way around so that was the kind of life plan and so far as i was getting one that was coming from him and you um, and you, to be clear did you buy that you didn't because often you you, no, you might you might complete okay well, I, uh, what I did was I didn't really, I mean, I thought of, I, I mean, after you know, I stayed on for university for another year, actually, I did a postgraduate, well, in theology, because I was also thinking about the possibility of doing some kind of academic research or a, a PhD on the relationship between religion and science, because that really interested me. But um, uh, I didn't, I decided not to do that. And then, and then the choice at that point was either um, becoming a barrister, which I was also quite interested in doing, but it would have required quite a lot of investment of money, or becoming an accountant um because uh, i i had re- i had kind of accepted the idea that i didn't really know i have a clue what i wanted to do uh um and i thought probably having a professional qualification was a good idea so it was pretty half-hearted um um you know this is the kind of next thing and i, I wasn't very radical and i don't you know i just kind of went along as many many people do in fact i, I sort of i sort of consider that decision as a sort of insurance policy yeah exactly yeah it's, some, it's something to fall back on it's something to fall back on if all goes if the world goes tits up you can yeah. always go back to being an accountant yeah exactly yeah yeah so um yeah i did i mean i i, I um joined uh kp well pete marwick as it was then called kpmg now in one puddle dock in the city um and I pretty quickly, after spending two months ticking invoices, um, I realized that this is, you this know, is being perfect. an auditor. This is exactly what I wanted to do <laughs> yeah. the rest, the rest <laughs> of my life. I've made it. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> I, I kind of knew I'd made it. Well, sort of a mistake, really. But but and and then I and then and then the choice was: do I stick it out or 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 not? And I, obviously, I realized that you know there are more interesting things to be doing once you get through the qualification bit. But um, it was pretty tedious and. Um, uh, I kind of was looking for other things to do right from the get-go, really. Um, but I did decide to stick it out. 
um, because I thought, well, okay, the qualification is probably going to be quite helpful. And a couple of mates of mine from university had gone to um, become this kind of strange job called being a clerk at the House of Commons. Um, And basically the clerks are like civil servants, but you're working for parliament, not for the government. And they do two things. They help all the parliamentary processes go through, so all the bills and everything else. And then the other thing they do is they look after all the select committees. So they write the reports, they organise the meetings, they brief the brief the MPs on the select committee. And these two said to me, he said, you should come here because you get the summer off and it's really good fun. Um, so I applied through the civil service exams while I was doing my accountancy finals, actually. And I was lucky enough to get in. And um, so and these things happened at the same time. So basically, I qualified as a chartered accountant. And then I left two days later. I think, I mean, just as everybody else getting their pay rise doubled, yeah. I've kind of gone through all the pain, <laughs> got none of the benefit um, and left. But you uh, had the insurance policy in place. But I had the insurance policy. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so then I went to workhouse court. And then it, that was really weird because. Just before you, before you tell yeah, us about that, Charles, what, what was driving you at that point to make that decision? So you, you, you joked about the summers off and it sounded very different but what was really driving you to make that decision do you think um i well everything i'd heard about from these characters who were working at at house of commons that just sounded so interesting number one the summer's off wasn't an idle point because i love walking in mountains Mm. and i'd been to two i'd done two trips to india walking in the karakorams and in the himalayas and the idea of being able to spend a month um in the summer off um uh, seemed just a great idea. And um, when I was at KPMG, I negotiated as a student two months unpaid leave each summer um, in order just to go on long holidays. Um, and because you're a student accountant, the managers just said, fine, you know, you know, otherwise you're just a dead weight overhead. Mm. So they didn't mind at all. Um, so um, the idea you work for an organization, I mean, and the, that has changed now, but but in the House of Commons then, when 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 the house rises in the end of July until it goes back beginning of October, you're off. <laughs> so it, it was a, you know, extraordinary kind of um, long summers. So that was really, you know, I was what, 23, 24. You're, I mean, it's pretty attractive. Tw- 23, 24. You're, you're still, it's still interesting to hear you describe decisions that you're making at that age in a way where you're confident that you're, doing things that just feel right because so many people at that age don't know even what feels right or they don't have the confidence to follow their instinct on that on that stuff do you, do you recognize that and also can you can you see what it might have been that was allowing you to to present that at, at that young age well i knew what felt wrong i mean i knew that um I mean, well, actually, I t- there was another aspect to leaving KPMG. Um, and, you know, I, I, the world needs accountants and it's a good company. But one of the reasons I left was I remember looking up because they they wanted to keep me. So they were giving, you know, interesting things to do. Look, here's this takeover thing. You you, you you come and work on that. So you work all these weekends. And I remember looking up thinking, OK, so if I stay here, I will want to be successful because I'll be competitive. Mm. So I will work all those weekends. And I want to be a partner by the time I'm about early mid-30s. And I thought, okay, so I will become, if I do that, the kind of person that they want me to become. In other words, I'll have worked all those weekends. I won't have those friends. I probably won't be playing the piano. I will have sacrificed those other things in order to succeed because that's clearly the deal. I'll earn a lot of money, but I don't want to become that person. I didn't, I, I didn't think I was strong enough to stay as I was if I stayed in that environment. 
So, so, so it sounds like it was those other things, those alternatives, mm. yeah, that were stopping you from going with the flow, as as we would. Yes, say. that's right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, <laughs> and also a sense that I wouldn't be strong enough to resist if I stayed in the flow. If you see what I mean? Yeah, because you I think some people can. Some people do. I've met since people who've been amazingly happy and managed to kind of survive environments like that and and be brilliant at them it's also horses for courses right i think you sure. know, some people are just very happy in a way that i wasn't in that role but mm. you, you you spent you know you, you casually mentioned that you spent a couple of summers off in the mountains in india i mean that again that's that's there's there's some adventure you've yeah got, you've got an adventurous spirit there because you know i went off traveling at a similar age and I was shitting myself, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I, it was just such a, it was such a big thing for me to do. It, it, that's not something you just do. Um, unless, yeah, I, unless, uh, how did you come to do that? Uh, because I had an old, my older sister, Sarah, uh, who I've always been very competitive with. Uh, she did it. And I thought if Sarah can do that, I can do it. There's no way okay, she's going to so, be the only member of the family who goes wandering into India. And, and how did she do it? Uh, age 18 she actually my parents when I think about it now actually you know this pre-mobile phones everything else in her gap year eight of them just took a there was um, a Land Rover eight students one slightly older person they drove right the way through Europe Middle East when you still could to India and they spent three months there and um, yeah and so that's how she did it uh, and I I went um, in my first year at university with a with actually the other guy who was doing the same subject and I he and I uh, we actually went overland, believe it or not, through Iran, through Afghanistan, um, to uh, Kashmir, and then up to Ladakh. Uh, and then I did another holiday with a um, after university in in, in Pakistan, um, going up to a place called Gilgit and up to the Karakorums, which is the western end of the Himalayan range. Um, yeah. so absolutely they, beautiful. Yeah, and uh, but there's this there's this real theme coming through. I think you know not not just talking to you but talking to other people that if you've got if you've got people that are in your circles in your the clubs you belong to whether they you know the family or your university yeah. or your school or whatever it, it it becomes possible and yes that's true i think yeah um, was it so was it your sister that was making this feel possible for you yes it was yeah 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 and that's and, like and, competitive thing too yeah right and how how much was she representing uh taking a different path through life in terms of career and choices that might otherwise be unconventional. Did, did, did you see her doing similar things? Yeah. I mean, you should have her on this program because she, she's, she's unbelievably unconventional. So interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let's, let's come back to the, to the, the house of house of commons then. So was it what you expected? So you, you got the summers off, which was a, a big tick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, well, it was. I mean, well, it was a very different kind of world, um, and uh, you go from being a baby accountant, you know, being a junior auditor of some large companies, to suddenly sitting beside the chairman of a select committee who says, "Well, we've got the chairman of British Steel coming in next week, and w what should I be asking him?" And so you're kind of suddenly you know, sort of going from the bottom of a big organisation to suddenly helping somebody engage with the top of it. So it was a very weird transition. And they said, God, we've never had an accountant here before. You better be a clerk to the Trade and Industry Select Committee. So, so I was actually using my accountancy um, uh, in a way, um, uh, and you know, with a, with an older colleague, obviously, who was the main clerk, and and we worked together, and it was absolutely fascinating. 
so I learned a lot about the political world and um, um, I really, really enjoyed it. And you, you know, and intellectually, it was very stimulating as well because you end up having to write all these reports. You're expected to, the, the clerk's department is quite small. I mean, they take a couple of people a year and you realise pretty quickly that nobody asks anybody. It's very light touch, no kind of regime particularly, but nobody ever says anything twice to anybody. Um, you know, there was just an expectation that, okay, everybody here is pretty smart and they do, they just do what they do. Um, and there's a, a lot of very, very, um, yeah, impressive people there. Um, so you, you had to be on your game in that mm. way, you know, nobody was late, stuff was done in a, in a kind of easy way. Um, and so I spent two years on a select committee and then I had a year in, um, uh, in, in what's called the public bill office, which is dealing with legislation going through where you're kind of on standing committees doing um, bills and things. But uh, for after a bit, I mean, by then I was kind of, I wasn't very happy thinking about absolutely not at all sure what I to do with my life. I really did have a bit of a kind of crisis at that point and um, uh, decided, I decided to leave. I mean, they gave me a year, the, the head clerk said, look, you know, have a year off if you want to come back and come back um very nice letter but but basically i got a kind of i, I decide i did decide to leave and try and go and work out what i wanted to do with my life so i that was a and that was difficult because it's a very nice place to stay you know um most clerks it's a career once they're there it's competitive to get into once people are there they tend to stay for life mm. because you move you know it's um so it's unusual in leaving a few do but not many but you'd already done that once and it had been I'd okay. already done that once. So I, I kind of thought, yeah, I'll, I'll go off and try and work out what I want to do with my life. Do you remember what triggered that? Do you remember um, what led to the confidence in this? This just doesn't feel right for the rest of my life. Well, it was partly that the, the kind of political world, um, the political world is quite, um, it sounds bizarre to say this, but it's, it's quite insular. So, it, you know, that, that whole kind of Westminster Village thing. Um, and it's very, you know, oh, wow, you work at the House of Commons. There's a kind of, you know, it's a sort of cachet. Mm. But there's also, I don't know. And I, and I was, um, so there was that aspect to it. Um, uh, yeah, relationship-wise, I wasn't in a particularly good place. Um, and I, I I just needed and wanted to wanted to change. Um, but also, I think, well, yeah, I was kind of just not sure what I wanted to do with my life at that point. And then what did that process of exploration look like for you? Uh, well, um, I actually ended up going on a retreat. Um, uh, of, a, of a rather strange kind. So I actually spent um, three months at a, um, a place called St. Binos in North Wales, which is a, it used to be the... Um, uh, training center for the Jesuit religious order and is, is a house now which is still run by the Jesuits but it's run as a retreat house and the poet Jared Manley Hopkins actually lived there in the late 19th century um, and they ran uh, a course which included um, doing this thing called the spiritual exercises of St Ignatius which is basically sounds scary but it's not um, it's a month in silence so mm. you are on your own, pretty much. And there were 30 of us who did this course. And, and it was a course basically for people who were thinking of becoming or being involved as kind of 
spiritual guides or companies or kind of thing. So I was much younger than anybody else doing it, doing it for completely different reasons. And it just seemed like a completely wacky thing to do. And a, a quite wise old guy said to me, why don't you, you know, as a way of trying to work out what's most important to you in your life and what you really want to do with it, which was the question that I was holding at that point. Why don't you go and do this course and try and see whether you can find out? And so I left my flat in London, you know, a couple of flatmates and paid some money and went off into this course. Um, came back three months later and they said, well, do you know what you're going to do now? And I said, no. And they said, should we, they said, you should ask for your money back. Anyway, so I didn't, <laughs> but I didn't do that. But it was it was actually very powerful. Um and so you did do a whole month, a month in silence. Yeah. Yeah. So you see somebody each day and then the idea is that you have no distractions, really. Um, you know, maybe you have the Bible to read if you want to do that, and a kind of notebook. And um, it's quite spare. Um, but the point is, and I think this kind of journey is common to all the main traditions, really, the main faiths, i.e., you know, the deepest problems that human beings have are the problems of confronting, of, of, of each of us confronting ourselves. Mm. Um, and um, so you, if you, if you're on your own for a month, there's a few places to hide after a bit. <laughs> yeah, and you end up, you end up having. Um, well, you do. You, I mean, you end up thinking, you know, reflecting on your life, what you've done, what you want to do, um, in quite um, a different sort of way, um, and. For me, the way I think of it, I mean, I'd always kind of been, I suppose, a person of faith in some way or other, but I'd always had this sense that there was sort of, you know, there's faith and then there's life. And these two things are kind of separate. And I, at the end of that, that three months, I remember thinking, well, I, I'm not sure what I believe fundamentally at all. But what I do know is that I've got one go in my life and there is a difference between what's real and what's illusory. And I don't want to live illusory life an illusory life i don't want to i don't want to follow things that are bollocks basically mm, mm. and i really don't want to get to the age of 90 and look back and think shit if only i'd known what i know now i'd have done it all differently i wanted to i really did want to make sure that i tried to live in a way that made kind of sense of what's real That's and that, that that sounds like a really really profound experience to me in terms of yeah. well, firstly going through it what it might have actually felt like and how it might have changed how you saw yourself and then also what it led to. Yeah. What was, was that the case? Was it the case for everybody else that experienced it? Would you recommend it to other people? What were, what were the, some of the darker bits of, of that experience? Well, the dark, I mean, the darker bits are, you know, you, you, you <laughs> it's, it's the dark bits for all of us are really confronting oneself and you think, you know, some of it's very depressing and you think, and you also think, well, can I, you know, can I change? Is this worth it? What's, what's this all for? Um, uh, there were people who'd been through really, um, actually, I'm very sad, you know, I mean, people who kind of committed themselves to a religious life and were really depressed and miserable as a result of that um in fact one of them was himself a jesuit actually and who had studied as a student in this same place and was coming back here 30 years later for this course and towards the end of the course he told a lovely story actually he said the day i arrived for this course um he said something happened to me which just completely blew my mind and we all said well what is it what was it and he said well somebody had been thoughtful enough to put some flowers in my room and when i was here as a student it was just the jesuit men who were running this place nobody would ever have done that but it was one of the women on the team who said, look, we've got these 30 people coming for three months. Wouldn't it be nice if there were fresh flowers in all the rooms when they arrived? And for this man's mind, that simple act of kindness and generosity kind of 
<laughs> had this quite big impact. So it's a, it's a very moving. Really. So yeah, you know, I, I think it did have an impact on everybody. No doubt about that. Hmm. It had a oh yeah, everybody was different at the end of it. The other thing that's really weird is if you spend a month with a bunch of people on a common effort, saying absolutely nothing, by the end of it, you're a community. Mm. Yeah, because you, you it, well, it's interesting that the parallels with COVID at the moment. Exactly. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think I think that's one of the huge, huge pluses, if there is such a thing from this, that mm. we have we are we are all experiencing it in different ways because we're different people and we're in different situations. But we it it is something that we've all been are, are going through at the same time, and that is there's something really powerful about that. Yeah. That's absolutely Ch- right. Yeah. Charles, was it the case that you literally didn't say a word for a month? No, it's not. So every day you had somebody, so everybody was assigned a kind of spiritual accompanier. So you'd see that person every day and you'd you'd talk to them a bit about your prayer and your reflections during that previous 24 hours. And they might suggest passages of scripture or Psalms or something that you might use to meditate on Mm -hmm. in the day afterwards. So, and and there was a, in, in the, um, in, in this, spiritual exercises as they're called basically it's a month of of so there's a sort of pattern to the to the to the days and you kind of you you follow through a certain program but it's the jesuits themselves have rediscovered this it's it it used to be very rigid and prescriptive but in the way that i experienced it wasn't at all like that it was very freeing actually and that's a very that's a very common thing in the east as well isn't it oh it's very similar yeah yeah. absolutely yeah yeah um i before we move on to what happened next, I'm wondering: have you have you have you ever done that again? Would you do it again? Would you recommend it to other people? Uh, I would definitely recommend it to other people. What I would recommend is is um, there are lots and lots of short retreats mm. um, that you can do. You can do a weekend. You can do six days. You can do eight days. And I would strongly recommend tr- doing one of those before you try and do a thirty, um, just to see because it's not for everybody uh, and it is a bit odd um but they are um and it's what in my experience and i think of other pieces as well it's a kind of there's a delayed action effect that these things have it's often a year or two years later that things suddenly become clear um uh for you for me that was certainly true um and i have yes i mean what i've not done a, another 30-day retreat uh, but i have done um uh, eight days mm-hmm. i've done two or three of those i did one a couple of years ago um, what kind of what kind of frequency between them? Oh, I've probably done about three or four in the last twenty years. I mean, okay. not, I don't do them that often. Yeah. Um, and did you by the end of the thirty days? So I, uh, that delayed effect is is really interesting to to kind of unpack. But what kind of clarity did you have, and how did that clarity shift and change as you started to understand more of what you'd learned in that experience? I think the clarity I had was that I had a I had a kind of um, I had a a much I suppose well you, I mean I came home and back to the flat and, and mate said you know it's like you you're on the inside out because you you're so sensitised to everything from this rather weird experience so you've got that but once you re, sort of re reengage with society I think the clarity I had was um, was um, both an ability to just be still and quiet and okay with that. Um, and um, a kind of a desire to just focus on what's, you know, what's, um, what's going to be worthwhile. Mm. And that was there, but I, what I didn't, the irony was I didn't actually have was, was a kind of clear direction of what to do next. 
And so my flatmate said, you know, you should ask for your money back. You haven't, you, you know, you've done all this stuff and you're still not sure what you want to do with your life. But but what I did have was a sense of, well, that's fine. It'll become clear when it's clear. You know, yeah. I, I was quite cool about that. I really no, was. Yeah. I wasn't bothered by it. It's sort of almost like you sort of cleared the hard drive, you know. You've, yeah, exactly. You've, you know, you've done some I think, time. I think so, yeah. I just re- – it was a complete reset. Yeah. It was a complete reset. And I, I think – I mean, I do think – I mean, I sometimes joke about it, but, you know, the two big decisions I made in my life were doing – were the two really. One was that, uh, and the other was marrying the woman who's mad enough still to be my wife. But uh, those are the two things that have had most impact on me. Yeah. Were, you, were you with her at the time? No but was shortly afterwards and kind okay. of she I mean she was my flatmate so we weren't quite ah. going out uh but you know one of those classic relationships where somebody moves in and then you know you kind of become interested in each other mm. after the fact you know but you have conversations about lifting the loose seat before conversations about <laughs> where should we go for dinner <laughs> <laughs> probably still do <laughs> and so how did so the, the the next big move was was the bit about working for god is that right uh no so what happened then was um uh, i decided not to go back to house commons and a, a, um a, a guy from university said look um uh i didn't know what i was going to do and he worked at a, a, a place called the institute for fiscal studies the ifs mm-hmm. and they needed an accountant to finish a project an accountant had started and i got ill so i said well i don't know any economics they said don't worry we'll teach you the economics just come and finish this report so I, I went and worked for them and I ended up staying at the IFS for two years and I ended up learning quite a bit of economics and writing, setting up a, a different project for them as well on using some of the experience I had in the House of Commons about how you form committees. So we, we set up a committee on tax reform uh, on capital gains tax. Um, and um, and the great thing about that opportunity was that if you go into an environment where um, they all know you know nothing about the core thing of the business, but that's okay, you can go around asking stupid questions. And if people are really, really brilliant at what they do, and by God, they are, they're all superb economists, you learn really fast because mm. they can explain super clearly at whatever level you want to go down um, um, what the kind of core ideas is. So I, it was a it was an amazing opportunity to learn some economics. So I that's what I did. So I did I did a, this first report for them, completed that on, it was on corporation tax and inflation. So completely different from anything I'd done before. And then I ended up doing, setting up a, a, a kind of review of, of inheritance tax and capital gains tax. So um, yeah, and so I spent two years doing that. But I've, and, and so and, and initially really, really enjoyed it, learned some economics and then thought, but actually, uh, this is fun, but I'm not sure this is what I want to spend my life doing either. And then one day a week, I was um, working on a project with a nun who I'd met. Um, uh, actually, it was to do with sort of people coming from university in London, sort of faith was sort of important to them. But where do you, you know, nobody's a member of a parish. What, what kind of community support do you have? And I was working with her on that. And she wanted to get some money out of the then archbishop, um, a guy called Basil Hume. In Westminster for for uh, for me to so I, I met him um, to try and get some money out of him and and he was the most wonderful man and um, we spent an hour together and at the end of it he said look um, I won't give you money to go and work with Sister Madeline but if you're looking for something to do um, I actually need somebody in my office and you know you've done some philosophy you've done some theology you know a bit about politics you now learned a bit about economics. All of that's quite relevant. Um, I need somebody to be, you know, do the press stuff, have, help me write speeches for not homilies, but the external facing stuff. 
Um, and that was uh, completely from the blue. I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, and then I went and thought about that and, 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 and said yes. So I ended up working for him. But I thought, well, I've never done anything for longer than three years. So I'll do three years of this and I'll go do something else. And, and he was the most, just the most wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and um, I ended up working with him for 11 years. So at that point, I became more settled. Got married, yeah. started having children. Yeah, it's it's a really you until that point. Different was the driver in a way. It, it seems. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've gone numbers. Yeah, the economics thing. Actually, I, need, I want to go back to that because I think that what what you did there, like going into an environment and saying I know nothing about economics. A lot of people could easily be put off by the fact that they don't know anything about economics and feel as though they um, are going to. It's not where they should be because they don't know anything about it, but that's exactly the reason that you should be there. And you've got this incredible freedom to say, I know nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And ask the stupid questions. And I think that's really liberating when you can go into a situation and be honest and say, I know Mm. nothing. And then people amazingly, or not so amazingly, because people are pretty good, want to help you. Yeah, they do. Yeah, and, and I think it's a real, real lesson that if you know nothing, it might just be the very reason you should do it. Yeah, be, because you're also bringing, uh, um, I don't know what you call it. There's an expression. It's like the it. cross disciplinary experience that well, you bring. It's, it, it, yeah, it's not. It's the novice eye. It, it's you know, yeah. it's, it's the mm. child, the childlike um, <clears throat> intrigue. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you can, and sometimes n- not knowing anything allows you to identify issues that nobody else could. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so it's not it's not a reason not to do something because you know nothing, uh, and as you say, you know, you bring you bring all this other stuff with it, and it's you know that's what makes it you know you, you valuable. Mm, mm. Yeah. When that opportunity showed up with the Archbishop. Um, what a funny thing to say. I can't believe I've just said that in a, in a real <laughs> sentence. <laughs> um, firstly, when, when you described uh, his offer and observation about you and your experience and how he needed somebody, it made me feel like um, that's a very specific kind of thing that he felt he needed. And I wonder if maybe he just saw something in you that he th- was confident that w- would kind of come good in that environment. But also for, for your side of the fence, you'd been looking for that sort of sense of direction yeah, and hadn't found it in any of the obvious places. And it sounds like when this showed up, was it a big decision or did it just feel right? It felt right. Mm. And was yeah. it easy to recognize that it felt right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I had to work out whether we could live on it. I mean, because it wasn't going to pay me an enormous amount. But I suppose, I mean, the, the, from the money point of view, the big decision I made in terms of, you know, going back to what we were talking about school and, and everything else. I mean, the big decision I made when I left KPMG was, okay, if I ever have children, I'm probably not going to privately educate them even if I wanted to. Mm. So I, may, I, I knew I was making a long-term money decision at the point at which I left KPMG because I asked comments didn't pay the same and nor was anything else. But so I was, I was kind of content with that. And so far as the Hume job was concerned, um, yeah, you know, I just w- wanted to be able to, we had a, 
um, we didn't have any children actually at the point I took the job on, but we 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 um, then did have a family. So I that that was that was a constraint. But he was pretty generous about that actually, and said, look, you know, I can't pay you. I'll try and pay you what I can pay, um, you know, a reasonable charity rate, um, which he did. Mm. And ha- how did that experience of working for the church or for God or for the Archbishop? How did that change you? How did that change the way you saw the world? Well, I think it was working for him, really, that was the biggie. I mean, it, 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 the, the, the outfit, you know, God be all known, I mean, recently, I mean, the terrible um, uh, mess the church has made in so many areas, particularly the worst recent child abuse stuff, which is just appalling. Um, but at its heart, you know, the core of it is rather a good idea, you know, that the world is better off if love has a rather bigger part to play in everybody's lives, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Hume as a man um, was a wonderful um, and holy, I, I, he is, he was a holy man. I mean, he's, he's had a great sense of humor. Um, nobody's fool, uh, wasn't up himself in the least and didn't take himself too seriously. And he was pretty shrewd when it came to political stuff. Um, and more, who, who was prime minister? Was it, was it Margaret Thatcher? Thatcher. Thatcher yeah. 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 And, he and used you, to, d- you dealt with her. I seem to remember you telling me a story of, you yeah. dealt with her a few times, didn't you? Uh, I did. And, and, uh, with John Major as well, um, when um, uh, at the beginning of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, the 1990 Gulf War. But with, with um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember with Mrs. Thatcher, I, I remember there was one occasion on which she went up to um, give a, a speech to um, the Methodist Assembly in Scotland. And this was all over the television. And uh, Hume put his head around the door of the office, as he often did. There was a television in the corner. He said, what's going on? I said, well, this is Mrs. Thatcher, you know, she's talking about the New Testament and everything else. And I said, the, the press are bound to ring. I said, so what, what should I say? So he looked at it for a minute. And he said, Charles, he said, if they ring up, just tell them that in my busy life, I can only cope with one infallible person at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you worked for him for 11 years, I imagine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? He was just the most fantastic, incredibly quick. Um, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, the press never rang, so then that, that never appeared in the paper. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's on the Life Done Differently podcast now. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, no. He was the most. So I learned a lot from him, and and uh, and it was intellectually very stimulating because we jumped around from, you know, I kind of followed him around depending on what the what the issues were but i mean you know i mean he was president of the european bishops conferences so i spent a lot of time with him thinking about kind of european stuff and then there were education and then you know you get issues around refugees or sometimes bioethics i mean you have to you have to run around a whole gamut of different policy areas um and have the opportunity to think about them and and um also i mean when i arrived he was very heavily involved in the miscarriage of justice cases of the Guildford Four and the Maguires. So, you know, th- there were these celebrated cases at that time. And um, he got together with two former Home Secretaries, Roy Jenkins and Merlin Reese, and two law lords, Lord Scarman and Lord Devlin. And the five of them were arguing with the then Home Secretary, who was Douglas Hurd, about whether whether these people should be in prison and what you could do about that. So that was fascinating because I met all of them as well. And... Um, they were very determined and he was absolutely implacable about that because he, he'd met them in prison. That was, that was the origin of it. He'd met one of the Maguires from a, a Catholic chaplain at Wormwood Scrubs. He said, come and meet this man who's just here. And this guy was dying of emphysema. He'd come to visit his, his cousin. Um, 
uh, and had been arrested. And, you know, and Hume just heard this man's story and he just said, well, this is nuts, which it was. Yeah. Um, and, and but that was what convinced him. But it took him 10 years. Yeah. Wow. That happened in 1978. And he went to see Thatcher and uh, fact, just after she she became prime minister, she had him in and said, Cardinal, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, yes, there are innocent people in your prisons. To which he said, well, that's terrible. We must do something about that. Go and see Mr. Whitelaw. So, so he did. So he did. But, and 10 years, but yeah, but it then take, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, but, the, you know, it, it took 10 years. Yeah. Wow. And, and is it that, that that 11 years, I mean, it sounds as though it was a a change in the sense that you didn't stay with the organisation for, you stayed with the organisation for longer than three years, but the reality is that, you, you were kept so interested because there was so much diversity in what you yeah. were doing that it didn't feel like, you know, you hadn't reached that point where you yeah. needed to leave because everything was fresh. It was. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and it was, um, it was constantly, um, I mean, it got less as he got older, you know, after he got to about 70, put his head around the door and he said, I made a decision. I said, what's that father? He said, I'm going to be more and do less. <laughs> And he did, you know, for his last five years, he, he did power down a bit, which was very wise of him because, you know, um, but yes, no, I wasn't bored. I mean, and then, yeah, and and, and then he died. Then when, when he died, I, I did have another kind of decision point about what to do then. So I was mm. by then, what, 30, 38, 39. Uh, I thought about going to the going to the bar again, uh, looked around, applied for one or two jobs um, and then decided I would stay and see his successor in. Um which I did, um, kind of called Cormac Murphy O'Connor, and then I they I, I needed a change. They were happy. They wanted to keep me, but they said, "Look, we've got this outfit that looks after all the bishops, and we think that you could help reorganise that and carry on doing the sort of support work for the cardinal at the same time." And that's an outfit called the the, the bishops' conference. So, would you go and be an assistant general secretary of that? Uh, the general secretary is always a priest. Uh, so I did that from two thousand and one. Uh, and then um, the first iteration, I mean, the iteration has an awful word. I don't know quite how to describe it, but the, um, there have been all these rounds of this, but, but uh, there was an accusation. Well, the, the, it was basically the, 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 the first sort of episode of the whole child abuse thing. Mm. Blue. And uh, Cardinal Cormack asked Lord Nolan to come in and do a review. And I then got asked um, by him and by Lord Nolan to help do that. So behind the scenes, I did a lot of work. And very sensibly, they got a non-Catholic senior civil servant to be the secretary of it. And he said to me, look, why don't we work together? Because you know the you know the setup. I don't know anything about this. So I'll write it, but you can help. Um, and so I, I spent a year on that, um, uh, which was, yeah, I mean, very, very difficult. And, and until this point, is, it was there a, was there a point at which you were sort of thinking, I'm not qualified to do anything because, you know, you've, you've moved around. Yeah, there was. Yeah, absolutely. No, I did think that. I mean, I, I, I thought I was completely unemployable really at this point um, because I've done a whole range of things, none of which make any sense at all um, uh, uh, to any kind of, and, and, and also, but, and to be honest, I was, um, I think I kind of I was looking to go on and do something else. And if if the right thing had come at that point, I did apply for a couple of things and nearly got them. Um, 
and then thought, okay, well, I'll just stay and see what happens. But what happened then was when I did stay, um, uh, the bishops basically um, gave me my head a bit and said, look, you know, do this job. But if there are things you want to create and set up, then that's, then that's fine. So I set up a thing called a parliamentary internship program um, for young people interested in the career in politics and public life. Um, I managed to raise some money for that and get that going, which was huge fun. Uh, and we, because I, I strong, I mean, what I said to them is, look, you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time and effort thinking about priests and nuns and religious, you know, forming certain people. But what about, what about other roles in society? What about people going into politics? What about the civil, civil society? How do you think as an institution about that? Um, to which the answer was, well, not much. And so we, we set, um, we set this thing up, which which was really we tried to do it in a way that gave opportunities for people who would never otherwise have them. So we we did that, um, and I really enjoyed that. Um, that was good fun. So it just I, I, I'm trying to think of your the, the themes through your your life, certainly to this point anyway, and it's just novelty and curiosity and adventure is just consistent themes. Did, did you know that or, 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 or no I was I think I was thinking the same thing as Ray I was thinking but I was thinking about it in a, from a slightly different perspective I was thinking you you went to Oxford you were publicly educated um the the people that you must have grown up with almost certainly went on to go and achieve traditionally quite successful things and that would have been all around you how were you able to look at what you were doing and the decisions you were making alongside that normal and yes. be okay with that? Um, uh, yeah, okay. So so um, I think the friendship group I had, and I, I made some really brilliant friends from, from university who are still friends. And they were, and I suppose probably why they are still friends, were really supportive of everything I did mm. and, and kind of counterbalanced that. And so, so was Fiona, uh, my wife, um, you know, uh, and I think she and I have a kind of similar philosophy that, which is basically about do something that's really worthwhile for you and a good use of a good use of you and your talents and your life. And, you know, the kind of materialistic stuff is pretty ephemeral. Yeah. Um, and, and going cares. back, I think you said earlier, you didn't want, you didn't want to get older and look back and have regrets yeah, um, absolutely. About the way you'd lived your life, and that's that's the guiding light in a way, isn't it? The, the no, yeah. no, no regrets, which you know we, we we've talked about lots of times on this on this podcast because it's as good as way as any. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it is. I think absolutely it is, and it doesn't answer. It doesn't always help. It doesn't necessarily answer the questions of what I do now. Just you know, because there are lots of ways in which you can avoid regressing things. It doesn't actually tell you necessarily, but I think it's a it, it's a kind of it's freeing. That's what it is. It's free for me. It was freeing and kind of I I I didn't um, yeah you know I don't think I had a kind of dominant father figure that i needed to please you know felt kind of constrained by yeah uh, this is what i got to do to prove something to somebody yeah um i think i did manage to step out of that or have managed to step out of that 
And you're, you you mentioned your wife before. So you, did you did you find one another and share that philosophy? And that's part of what brought you together, or did you help one another find that philosophy together? Uh, I think I think we both had that philosophy already. Yeah, mm. I think that's part of part of what attracted us to each other. And yeah. do you think that the, the the friends that you mentioned, do you think they share that philosophy as well? Yes. Yeah. Right. On the okay. Whole they do. Yeah. So you've kind of gravitated towards. I've gravitated that. to people who who kind of think sort of similarly. Mm. Pretty challenging. I mean, they don't. We don't. I wouldn't. But there. But there's a kind of yeah. I suppose a sort of ethos about what matters. Mm-hmm. It's not a shared faith particularly or anything like that, but it's a kind of perspective on life, I suppose. Mm. And, and how, how did you, 11 years working for Hume is um, it's quite a lot of exposure to sort of God type stuff, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> God type stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how did, how did, how did that, um, change the way you think about faith if at all um so i think that it changed it a fair bit i mean i mentioned earlier that you know i kind of you get the sense of being colorblind so there are you know people who work in these institutions have certain roles i think people are fundamental you know human beings don't basically change because they're um uh in different organizations um I think I met some amazing people, and Hume was one of them. And I do think that at its core, and for me, the, the faith thing is it, it didn't um, is important. Um, so, um, but I but I've also seen, and you know, you become more and more aware of the frailty of institutions and the difficulties of institutions, and also also the ways in which um, psychologically things can be very very disabling rather than freeing mm. so um so i think sometimes religious faith can be incredibly powerful liberating and enabling and in other contexts can be disabling and guilt driving and distorting so so when it um, comes from people are you saying that when it no comes I, to- I just I, I i just think i've seen in in the way in which faith has manifested itself in people's lives um it can be and this isn't it's not so much to do with the truth of the propositions as to whether there is whether god exists and whether love is at the heart of everything which i both of which i happen to believe but the way in which um people's lived experience of an institution or the way in which they construct their images of god or what matters can be um yeah, I mean, you know, in the Catholic tradition, there's a sort of, you know, the sort of images of God as a sort of superego who's uh, constantly telling you that you're wrong and inducing guilt and sin and all of this stuff. I mean, people who have, you know, write brilliant novels and have deeply distorted lives as a result of these mm. kind of distorted ways of thinking. And I, I think one just has to accept that, you know, religion is a huge, you know, the, 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 I believe the faith instinct or the yearning for meaning in life is a fundamental human one. We're not going to this is absolutely, you know, it's been right there right through history. And although in the contemporary world, we kind of look at this in a slightly odd way and think, well, what on earth is this? The truth is that the, the, this deep desire of people to seek meaning in life doesn't ever go away. Mm. And the question is how we find ways in which that is life-giving and generative and freeing and be super honest about both the emotional and the intellectual quest and what's involved. Um, so for me, um, 
I've met some amazing people who who live lives of extraordinary service to others and are wonderful, wonderful human beings, inspired by their faith to do all of that. Mm. And there are others who's who's maybe found the experience who've not found that liberation in it. The way we've talked about that in the past is is that 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 context manifests as a story and it's the the role of the story that drives behavior yes and so i I can see it in the way you're describing that one story can create an a behavior that that is freeing and liberating and another story can create which is the same story but the context is different can create um behavior that holds somebody back and um and and creates fear and creates risk and and, and a conservatism. Um, so it's just interesting to hear you say that in a slightly different way. But I think that that the power of the story that sits within that is um, is a, is an interesting aspect to the to the driving of behaviour. Yeah. So what happened next? Um, so um, what happened next was uh, I end up uh, carrying on working for the bishops. Um, uh the internship scheme goes really well uh i'm able to raise money other people say you seem to be able to raise money would you raise money for other things uh so i'm asked to set up a kind of little fundraising outfit for various projects and through doing that i meet a whole bunch of people who are not just catholic but um other faiths as well in the city and you know this is early 2000s um and um have kind of an informal sort of network of people who are who are in business and um and then and then we come to the to sort of this is the link to blueprint really because what then yeah go on what what, what all of those people so the thing that brought everybody together was it that they all followed a faith or was it that they were in business what what was the unifying factor for whom for in that blue- group of yeah, for the more well, no before blueprint, but that group of individuals that oh, the group, well, 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 so I mean that was just one of the things I did, but yes, I mean the the, the kind of fundraising crowd were mostly people of faith, yeah, okay, yeah. M- not just Christian actually, mm, Muslim mm. and Jewish as well, um, um, yeah, yes, yeah, so that that was that was that in common, okay, and so that brings us back up to where we started, which is uh, you you then find yourself creating a charity. Um, which is an yeah. unconventional way to to help businesses be yeah. more generative and and that connection between society and business. And then, yeah, and and it's interesting looking back through those decisions that you've made because your sympathy for the human condition and and the systems that we find ourselves in and our ability to be able to shift and change those systems and ourselves ha- has very much been seen in your own patterns of of, of change. How do you now think about that? So you, so you've got the charity away. Um, you've started to see that that the the role that the charity can play in, in being able to shift and change those those companies and those individuals that you work with. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave the way you're thinking about the future and and um, living by that philosophy of of wanting to apply yourself the most to the thing that, that you're your best place to do. Well, I mean, the thing about, I mean, the, the a blueprint is that it's given me uh, an opportunity to jump out of a kind of world into a completely different world, mm. um, which was actually a bit of a, a risk at the point I did it. Um, and, but I, I, I felt that I'd kind of 
in a way made the contribution I thought I could make to the institutional church. And I thought I kind of been there, done that. Um, and that this was so interesting as a set of challenges. Uh, and I was just really curious to see what might be possible, you know, if you really take this thinking seriously and engage with people to see what might work. And uh, I think the other kind of reinforcing things that helped was that I was conscious that, and I, you know, we talked about obviously having a specific Catholic Christian context for this, but it was really clear that if Blueprint was going to work, it couldn't be based on one faith or any faith, actually. So we set up an interfaith, we set up a, a multi-faith group. And we also had some dialogue with some humanists around the thinking. And that gave me confidence as well. Okay, so this actually works in a different, you know, the, the principles of the common good and human dignity are universal. And there's a way of describing and talking about this, which doesn't defend on a faith presupposition, but the language is releasing and it's, you know, it's an imaginative, it creates an imaginative space for people to think about possibilities in business differently. So that was really, really great. Uh, and then there were some amazing people who came along, you know, completely outside any context I'd come across before, who kind of said, this is cool. Let's see, you know, how can we how can we work together? Coaches and consultants, people in business <clears throat> uh, from big companies. Um, and we sort of created a bit of a community, I suppose, of people who are just interested in this. Um, and um, and and there was some a couple of you know, really really thoughtful people at the heart of the thinking as to how this would how this might work, um, and my own role evolved because in 2012 I was you know essentially seconded to help sort the ideas out. So we created this construct called a blueprint for better business, um, and I was part time doing that and still part time doing my kind of bishops conference role as well. Then we formed the charity in 2014. Then the trustee said, okay, so will you be acting CEO two days a week, uh, two jobs, go and raise some money for the charity and then um, get some companies interested. And then in two years time, well, if you've done those things, we'll advertise your role, a full-time role. <clears throat> so that's what I did. And then and then at the end of 2016, um, they advertised the role. I decided to apply. My wife said, why on earth would you do that? Leave a secure role, you know, a mid fifties old fart to go and, you know, run an untested charity, to which I said, well, because it's fine. I mean, and she really, really, I mean, we had quite a discussion about it. Um, well, we didn't really have a discussion about it. In fact, that was a problem. I just did it. <laughs> we later on had lots of discussions about it, but I was just determined I was going to do it because I thought, no, come on, this is, um, uh, I just believed that there was something here. I also believed that I could make a contribution to it and I was just not going to not do it. Um, so I did it. Uh, and I'm really, really pleased I, I have because I think, it has gone somewhere and I think it's got a good, it's got a, a future. Um, and as we were saying earlier, I mean, in a, you know, although you can't, you never sort of really know, or at least I've never really known what I was going to do looking forwards. It is really striking to me that looking backwards, <clears throat> what I'm doing now, you know, makes active use of everything I've done before. I mean, so it's helpful to be an accountant. It's helpful to know a bit about politics, to know a bit about economics and to, have spent some time thinking about the kind of ethical spiritual dimensions of life so mm. so it's a kind of synthesis really in that way and uh, but i have i have made another decision which is that i'm going to stop in just under two years and i've told the trustees because i've seen founder syndrome you know it's much better to go when they want you to stay than stay when they want you to go so i'm going to go spring 2022 um and between now and then i'm having a bit of a think about what comes next 
um, uh, but I'm I'm not certainly not retiring. Um, but I've got some ideas about what I want to do, and I'll continue to support the charity, but without getting in the way of my successor. Mm. The good thing is they have to keep you for in the next two years. Really, they can't get rid of you now. <laughs> they can't. Yeah, no, that's right. true. Yeah, yeah. I say that they that, that, that they want me to stay, but right. it's a sort of rather blithe assumption. <laughs> I think that's genius, Charles. That's just the way to do it. <laughs> what um, there's loads that I feel that we can draw from this conversation in terms of some inspiration for other people around um, finding their their place in the world. And but but it would be really useful to hear from you. What what have you learned through this experience of change and? how you've gone about life that you feel you could pass on to other people? Gosh. Well, I think one is, is you never know what might be possible and to, um, to be kind on yourself and not beat yourself up and to look at what might be worth taking forward and not, and and also, well, I mean, I, I've also found it um, helpful not to um, not to worry too much about whether it's perfect or not. I mean, I think what somebody said to me once: you tend, people tend to regret the things they don't do rather than the things they do do, mm. and so. I am a believer in taking a risk and in pushing yourself. Um, and, you know, whether it's going mountaineering in India or suddenly finding yourself in with a bunch of business leaders, you know, it's not as scary as you think initially it's going to be. Um, and it's just people. Um, and I think the other thing, which is, which, which is, is just to be super curious and nosy about other things and kind of just, want to find I, th I think curiosity is really I think that's important and helpful and, li and life-giving you know because um and we're all changing all the time right so um and not I'm not worrying too much I mean so what okay it doesn't work so don't you know it's um and then I suppose the other thing is is that we you know we've all we have all got one go and there are probably better and worse ways of spending that Mm. So having a think about what's really worth doing and what's worth. And I also think, I mean, that Viktor Frankl line that, you know, man's search for meaning, it's always a personal question. There isn't an answer to the question, what's the meaning of life? But there is an answer to the question, what's the meaning of my life? Mm. Which is worth thinking about. Yeah. And if you're not sure, then you can go and spend a month. Not talking <laughs> <about that. laughs> but going back to the Viktor Frankl, it is only you that can decide, isn't it? Because exactly. Because it, it is so personally. So, so you can't look at other people and how they're living or have lived their lives or, or no. even your wife. No, yeah. absolutely. You know, Fiona the only person who can answer it is you. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And therefore there is no right or wrong answer. And that's quite liberating. Absolutely. It's hugely liberating. But also maybe we all deserve the right to answer that question for ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Regardless of our background or what's yes. going on at the moment. And also to give ourselves the time to answer it and not be worried if the answer is completely obscure, which for Absolutely. me it was for lots of times. Yeah. yeah and we'll I probably really... continue to be so, I would imagine. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the point, right? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an adventure. <laughs> Charles, it's been it's been such a pleasure, and I, I'm I'm really intrigued to find out more about what what Blueprint are up to and what you do next. What what where should people if people want to find out more about Blueprint or or yourself, where should they look? 
well, we've got a website. It's called www.blueprint4business, F-O-R, all one word, blueprint4business.org. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually, we've just redone it as a website. So, um, yeah, please do go and have a look there if you're interested in what we're up to. Um, and there's a bit about all of us uh, on that site as well. Lovely. Thank you, Great. Charles. That's it, folks. For show notes, head over to the website at www.lifedonedifferent.ly where you'll find links, a quick summary, and you can also explore other conversations. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please tell your friends, give us a good rating, and remember to subscribe. We're also really keen to hear your feedback, so please do let us know what you think and give us your ideas over on Twitter. You can tweet us at Life Done Diff, that's double F.